Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Andrei Ilarionov. I'm a senior fellow uh, here at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity of the Cato Institute. Uh, today, uh, we have a session, uh, the policy forum, uh, devoted to the uh, liberal institutions under stress in Georgia. Uh, Georgia became uh, the focus of international attention over the last uh, several years. If uh, we would try to have a similar session, let's say six years ago, it would be rather hard to imagine, uh, first of all, the big interest of uh, this audience it would be probably interest for a political scientist uh, who would study uh, the so-called failed states. Uh, probably six years ago, Georgia would be one of the very clear examples of failed states. Those who uh, had a chance to visit the country uh, that time uh, would find country in almost uh, permanent uh, blackout with an incredibly high criminal rate with the possibility to be uh, uh, kidnapped on, the, on 15 uh, uh, minutes drive from the Tbilisi International Airport to the downtown of Tbilisi. Uh, we, after the more than uh, 15 years of uh, economic uh, crisis, economic decline, with impoverished uh, populations, with hundreds of people uh, displaced uh, as a result of internal and international conflicts, with uh, substantial portions of uh, national territory uh, not under the control of the central authorities. After that was the Roth Revolution. It also has attracted enormous attention, uh, not only in the country, in the region, but around the world. What has happened after that within uh, five-plus-something uh, years is absolutely extraordinary. The group of uh, people who came to power has, uh, did, uh, has done something uh, that it's still rather hard to imagine. Uh, the number of uh, reforms in almost all areas that we can think of, uh, uh, reform of public sector, reform of, uh, in privatization, liberalization, regulation, uh, in uh, health sphere and pension sphere, energy, gas, uh, and so on and so on and so on. Even just mentioning all the reforms that have been introduced uh, and implemented in the country over the five years it will take some time. So as a result of this, a country has received really stellar performance. Uh, on average, 9% uh, GDP growth over several years and uh, has been avoided by very high rankings in almost all possible institutional uh, international rankings. The uh, changes of position uh, of Georgia, uh, let's say, in corruption index, uh, according to Transparency International, is uh, almost unthinkable from some kind of 130 places uh, in year 2003 to positions like 50 and 60 uh, in year 2008. In the in ranking of doing business uh, from positions around 100 place to 17th uh, uh, in recent uh, in recent rankings, so it became really economic miracle. But now a uh, new uh, uh, new fact uh, uh, that happened uh, in the summer last year, August war, 
that has also attracted enormous attention to the country and to the issues of uh, even survival of the statehood of Georgia. So the topic of our today's uh, policy forum uh, is uh, some kind of, uh, would have uh, two sides. First of all, to what extent liberal institutions, both in uh, government sphere, in economy, uh, that have been created in the previous uh, five years, uh, uh, were able to survive or not to survive in a new environment of uh, double hit from the war and from the international financial and economic crisis. And the second part is to what extent those institutions that have been created in the previous years of uh, economic and institutional reforms in Georgia uh, are able to bring country and to sustain its economic growth, its economic development, and uh, viability in this new environment. We have a wonderful uh, uh, group of people, uh, two speakers here, uh, who wills uh, you to address those issues, uh, those who have participated and still participating actively in the process of economic and institutional reforms in Georgia. Uh, our first speaker is uh, Mr. David Bakradze, who is currently Speaker of the Parliament uh, of Georgia. Uh, Mr. Bakradze uh, has an absolutely fascinating career He's uh, still very, very young, but nevertheless, he already uh, was able to serve as a, a ministry, Minister for Conflict Resolution, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Georgia, and uh, through this job, he became very well known around the world. And after the May uh, parliamentary election in Georgia, year 2008, uh, he was elected in June as a Speaker of Parliament. Now, in this capacity, uh, Mr. Bakradze is in charge of uh, quite impressive uh, changes uh, in uh, parliamentary uh, uh, presidential uh, uh, power share and new, uh, a new number of initiatives uh, how to increase and sustain democratic development of the country. Uh, also, during the term of uh, Mr. Bakradze, uh, the Georgian parliament has established uh, the Temporarily, Parliamentary Commission for Investigation of the August War, which to my mind is absolutely outstanding achievement. The Commission was able, within several months of its work, uh, uh, to see and to question 23 top officials of the uh, Georgian establishments, all ministers uh, involved in this business, uh, generals, military officers, prime minister, and even the president. And these uh, sessions of the parliamentary commissions have been broadcasted lively uh, to Georgia and around the world, and all these transcripts available. He will also have uh, 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 at this session the head of this commission, Mr. Pato Davitaya, who is sitting here, is it just, uh, which is also impressive because Mr. Davitaya uh, does not represent the authorities. Uh, Mr. Davitaya is from opposition. He's a vice speaker of parliament. He's uh, representing the other part of the Georgian society and in very, very often very critical of the Georgian authorities. Nevertheless, he has been elected uh, the head of this uh, parliamentary commission and was instrumental in success of this commission. So now the uh, uh, turn of Mr. Bakradze. Mr. Bakradze, the floor is yours and we are looking forward to listen from you. 
Thank you. Thank you very much, Andre. It's really my pleasure and honor to be here and to address such a distinguished audience. And I guess after such so many nice words about Georgia and about me personally, I have to be more critical about my performance and about performance of my government and my country. So uh, I'll try to uh, give you a, at least part of our vision, how country develops and what are the obstacles and what is the environment where we conduct all those liberal reforms. And the other part, which is for me the most difficult part, which is economic reforms and economic development, will be covered by Mr. Pendukidze, who is the architect of all those economic reforms. So I think I'm lucky that I escaped this difficult topic for me, and you will have a chance to listen to the person who himself was uh, a designer of all those reforms. So let me start by focusing on two important areas, which uh, to the large extent determine what's the overall situation in the country and what's the general framework and what's the general background for all uh, liberal reforms. That is security and that is uh, reforms and internal political situation. So let me start from security very briefly. And I'm not going to discuss again the uh, war in August 2007, which was basically a very important and the major event in my country's security development in the last few years. But if you have additional questions, we can discuss this issue more precisely during the question and answers period. I will just say that at the moment there is no progress regarding the conflicts and regarding the occupied territories. Unfortunately, we see no signs still of Russia fully complying with the August 12 ceasefire agreement, and the most visible example of that is still presence of Russian military troops, both in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And the Article 5 of uh, the ceasefire agreement, which was signed by Russian president, just to remind, by Russian president, by French president on behalf of EU, and by Georgian president, and the Article 5 of that agreement clearly demands from Russia to withdraw troops and to reduce overall numbers of uh, troops in Abkhazia and South Ossetia to the pre-war levels, which means about one, about 1,500 uh, soldiers in Abkhazia and about 500 slightly more in South Ossetia. What we have at the moment is about 12,000 soldiers in both regions, plus a lot of heavy armament which, which exceeds the ceilings for, for a scene by CFE Treaty in the in the southern flank of Russia and North Caucasian region. So what we see is not only non-compliance with the ceasefire agreement, but unfortunately something even worse, which are steps taken in the opposite direction to that agreement. So instead of reducing the number of troops, we see increase in the number of troops. Instead of withdrawal from these territories, we see attempt to institutionalize presence, presence on both territories by opening military bases. And we hear very clear statements from Russia about intentions to establish not only land bases, but also naval bases and air force bases in Abkhazia and also air force base in South Ossetia. So what we see is a clearly non-compliance and clearly a challenge created by Russia. And then we face, we still face, and under we, I mean not only Georgians, but the broader international community, number of very important fundamental issues, which are much more important per se than just the fate of Georgia or these two small regions. And the questions are that, first question, 
whether today any country is allowed to change borders by use of force. Basically, that's what happens in Georgia today, and that's a very clear policy. And we saw with the recognition of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, I think everything got its own name, and we saw very clearly what was the objective of uh, August invasion from the side of Russia. Russia. So as a result of that recognition and as a result of the uh, established military presence in both areas, we see a clear attempt from Russia to change borders of Georgia by use of military force. And that has not happened in Europe starting from the late years of the Second World War. So the fundamental question is whether Europeans and, in broader sense, representatives of Western civilization and Euro-Atlantic structures are able to defend the fundamental principle of security, which is no forceful change of borders. And if not, then there are a number of other questions. I mean, is Russia the only privileged country which cannot... Uh, follow that rule, or is it Russia and only in case of Georgia, which cannot follow that rule? So this issue has a number of implications, and it may, it will be opening of Pandora's box if uh, your Atlantic community agrees, even in one specific case, to agree and to accept the fact that borders of neighboring country may be changed by use of force. So that's the first fundamental issue. The second fundamental issue is human rights. And we see second wave of ethnic cleansing. The first wave of ethnic cleansing was conducted in Abkhazia in 1993, and that was recognized by three OSCE summits. And Russian president, then President Yeltsin, was among those 54 uh, presidents who recognized and signed the document accepting that there was ethnic cleansing against Georgian population in Abkhazia. We had second wave of ethnic cleansing now in South Ossetia last year in August, and that's also recognized by a number of international organizations like Council of Europe. And then, again, the fundamental question is whether ethnic cleansing can serve as a legitimate instrument to self-determination. Because what we hear basically today from Russians is that Abkhaz and South Ossetians have the right to self-determination. And here the question is whether ethnic cleansing can be a legitimate way to self-determination. It never happened in the history in the past. And when Russians try to compare these cases with Kosovo, it's a... There are a lot of differences, but the most vivid difference is that Kosovo was a case of international intervention which stopped ethnic cleansing. Abkhazia and South Ossetia was a case of Russian intervention which was a reason for to ethnic cleansing, which started ethnic cleansing. So these cases are diametrically different. In Kosovo, international community stopped ethnic cleansing. In Abkhazia and South Ossetia, Russians initiated and promoted ethnic cleansing. So these are two very different cases. And if ethnic cleansing can be accepted as a legitimate way to self-determination of Abkhazia and Ossetia, then again it has much wider implications than just Georgia, because we see a lot of different uh, conflicts around the world. We see a lot of secessionist movements, and that will be a major encouragement for all those to use force and to use violence eventually to legitimize their claim for self-determination. The third fundamental implication of Russia's war is uh, the restoration or attempt to restore the concept of uh, areas of influence. Because basically what influenced very much Russian decision-making on Abkhazia and South Ossetia and one of the crucial points why and when they made a decision to do it was uh, Kosovo's independence. And the misjudgment by Moscow, by Kremlin of Kosovo was that Americans demonstrate that they are strong enough to do what they want to do in Balkans. 
So why we Russians cannot demonstrate that we are also strong enough to do what we want to do in our own backyard, in our own sphere of influence? So Russians saw Kosovo as a kind of return to the sphere of influence politics when Americans and Western Europeans claim that they are interested in Balkans so they can do, in Russian understanding, they can do whatever they want to do in Balkans. So it was a kind of slap or challenge seen by Russian political elite, so they, re, they, they responded in their own way by demonstrating that they also have the sphere of influence where they can do whatever they want to do. And these open claims about the regime change in Georgia, about changing of government in Georgia, these open claims about being unhappy on Georgia's European choice, the open claims against president and leadership of Ukraine, again the open opposition to Ukraine's NATO membership, all these are very clear signs that Russia is trying to establish again, re-establish, not Soviet Union, of course, it's impossible, fortunately, but to re-establish its area of influence in this post-Soviet space. So again, the fundamental question is whether Russia is allowed today to establish its sphere of influence. And if yes, again, it has much more important implications than just Georgia, because who can tell you where this area of influence, where this near abroad, as they say, and it's a definition which Russians use, political experts use very frequently, near abroad. What does near abroad mean? Is it abroad or is it not abroad? In their understanding, it is abroad, but it's not real abroad because it's near. So at the moment it is abroad, but at any moment it can stop being abroad. So this is something very vague. So the question is where this near abroad ends. Does it end in Georgia, in Ukraine, in Moldova? Does it include Baltic countries? Does it include Eastern European countries of former Warsaw bloc? So it's again an open-ended question. So. This is another fundamental question, whether any country in Europe today is allowed to have its own sphere of influence. And again, implications of this question are much wider than just fate of Georgia or these two small regions. So I believe that based on all what I said, uh, this issue is not only Georgia's issue. And I believe based on what I said, it is very important that West remains consistent in its policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia on the occupation and conflict resolution. And consistency here is key. Because what was the initial expect expectation and still is an expectation in Kremlin that, of course, this kind of aggression would have a price. And, of course, for the first few months, three months, four months, five months, everybody would criticize Russia. But at the end of the day, Russia is too important to be ignored. So at the end of the day, everybody would agree to return to business as usual. So they would have... Uh, fait accompli on the ground with Georgia and business as usual with Europeans and Americans. And it's very important for them to know that it's not business as usual and policy remains consistent. And the fact that EU is ready for dialogue, the fact that US is ready for new relations does not mean that you all swallowed what Russians did last August and you all ignore the implications of these fundamental questions which I tried to explain. So it just means that there is this dialogue and there are relations, but these problems are part of that dialogue and part of that relation. Because Russians have to spend, and they already spent, enormous political resources in defending the wrong decisions, especially decision about recognition, which by assessment of many Russian experts who are relatively free thinkers today in Moscow, was a strategic and fundamental mistake from the side of Russia, and which, which was a fundamental headache which Russians took voluntarily. And they will have to spend a lot of resources defending this wrong decision of recognition in upcoming years. So then the question for Russia is, is it really good to spend so much political resources, to spend credibility, to damage the image of the country, to damage the image of the political leadership for what? 
for these two tiny spots for one criminal named Kokoiti being named being called a president of South Ossetia? Is it really something which makes Russia stronger and greater as a country and which improves Russia's position in the world? And the answers are clearly no. And once the emotions in Moscow are down, and if they see that there is a continuous price for that policy, there will be reassessment and rethinking of the results of the August war. But for that, it is important that this policy is continuous, and this price is continuous. Otherwise, if that is done, if that is ended, if that is business as usual, of course there will be no rethinking of the results in, in, in Russia. And then we lose all these fundamental questions which I mentioned. We, not only Georgians, but I think everybody who is interesting not to see dividing lines in Europe, not to see forceful change in borders, and not to see the legitimization of violation of human rights like ethnic cleansing is, then all of those are losers. So continuity is the key. And I really, I mean, we really appreciate the fact that we see clear signals of continuity from the side of new administration as well, and the very clear statements which we heard from Vice President, from Secretary of State, that the new relations will have an integral part, which is Georgia, and there will be no trade-off at the expense of the sovereign interests of Georgia, at, at the expense of U.S. national interests. This is something which is very much appreciated. And basically, the policy, which is policy vis-à-vis -vis Georgia, which is policy of red line, which is policy of economic, policy of energy independence and energy alternatives, which is policy of supporting sovereignty of post-Soviet space, this is the policy which was designed during the previous democratic administration, so it's a policy which survived already two administrations and is now continually implemented by the third administration, again democratic administration. So I think it's a consistent policy and this policy will continue. Uh, uh, about security, that's it. If you have any concrete questions later about security, I can describe the situation because it's still hard. As I said, we still have Russian troops, Russian soldiers. They are located in one part of one region, which is a Halgori region, which is about 20 miles away from the capital, Tbilisi. They lo located a lot of uh, far-range artillery in that region so that Tbilisi, the capital, is within the reach of that uh, far-range artillery. They located a lot of ACVs and uh, I mean, tanks in that region, so there is still ongoing security risk. I do not think that in this situation Russians will dare to start any large-scale military operation again, but still there is the security risk, which makes life much more complicated in my country, which scares a lot of investors, because it's not easy decision to invest in the country, 20% of which is occupied by, by foreign troops. And to the common horror, those are Russian troops, which makes this case even more difficult. So it undermines confidence of investors, it undermines confidence of internal business, and it creates a lot of general frustration in the Georgian public. So it is still a security threat from that viewpoint. And we have daily incidents, and prevention of daily incidents is a very, very urgent task for us. And you know that you may know that there is a so-called Geneva process where Parties try to negotiate and find a political solution, and at the last meeting of that Geneva process, uh, all parties agreed to set up this special mechanism, which is incident prevention mechanism. And two days after that document was signed, South Society and the paramilitaries kidnapped uh, two Georgians, and immediately it was a test 
how effectively this incident prevention mechanism could work. And unfortunately, I should say that it failed because clearly there was no political will from Russians this mechanism to be implemented. And so this mechanism, which was signed in Geneva, could not survive the very first test, which happened in two days after its signature. But it doesn't mean that we should abandon that. It just means that we have to be more active in Geneva. We have to push more actively on the political process of negotiations, and we have to achieve more. If this mechanism is not enough, we have to work out the new mechanism, and we have to work out the ways how we can put responsibility, more responsibility on Russians, first of all, so that it, Russia is interested in preventing this kind of incidents as well. That's about security briefly. Again, if you have any specific questions, uh, I'll be happy to answer. About the internal economic situation, uh, internal political situation, I apologize. And uh, I, we say many times in Georgia that what Georgia needs at the moment is stability. But uh, there is a very clear understanding in countries' political leadership that, unlike some countries, stability in Georgia can never be achieved at the expense of democracy. Quite in contrary, democracy is an essential condition for stability in Georgia because we are a very open society. By the extent of internal freedom, Georgia is certainly one of the most free societies which I've seen. I traveled a lot. I have very good connections and friends in many Eastern and Central European countries. And I can say, not because I'm Georgian, but I can certainly say that by extent of internal freedom, by extent of openness, Georgia is one of the most open and free societies which I have seen in that part of the world. So there is a clear, there is no question at all that in Georgia, like in some Asian countries, for example, stability can be achieved at the expense of democracy. It's not a question. The only precondition for stability in Georgia is more democracy. And there are two basic conditions for stability in Georgia. That is strong and responsible government and strong and responsible opposition. So that is the understanding. What we do in order to move to that direction. First of all, this is about internal reforms. Uh, starting from September last year, when uh, we announced the new wave of uh, reforms, I mean, we did a lot, I believe, and it's up to your judgment, and we distributed the document which describes in details all the reforms which we have done and which we are doing in Georgia. And there are three basic directions of those reforms. One direction is uh, strengthening uh, parliament as an institution. And I think that's a very important direction. And that is the direction where we have political consensus among political leadership. We already initiated a number of constitutional amendments which strengthen parliament as an institution and makes division of power in the country better balanced or balanced more in favor of parliament. And we believe it's a right trend to make parliament stronger. So we initiated those constitutional amendments and they will be adopted immediately once we have positive conclusions from the Council of Europe and Venice Commission. We're just waiting for the opinion of international experts to make those amendments even better. The second direction of our reforms is to strengthen opposition within the parliament and in the country in general. And that is important to understand why we do it. Because sometimes, you know, some of our critics criti say, criticize us that we cooperate and strengthen parliamentary opposition. And you may know that in Georgia we have a kind of division. We have part of opposition which is called parliamentary opposition, and that is part of opposition which accepted results of last parliamentary elections and entered the parliament and took their seats. And we have non-parliamentary or radical opposition, guys which refuse to accept results of elections and 
government said that they will not enter the parliament, so they refused to enter the parliament and take their seats, so they remain outside parliament. So the vision is parliamentary and non-parliamentary opposition, and non-parliamentary opposition is more radical. So some of them criticize us for being too cooperative with parliamentary opposition. But the incentive behind is not that, I mean, we have any special or friendly, friendly relations with those guys. No. The objective behind is that we need to make opposition stronger. I say we need because that's the basic understanding, that power never comes alone. Power comes only, always with responsibility. And the more powerful opposition is, the better placed opposition is, more responsibility it has. And responsible opposition is not dangerous, neither for us as a ruling party nor for the country. I mean, the more powerful and more responsible opposition we have, the more secured we are than the processes in the country develop in the right direction. What we are afraid is exactly irresponsible opposition, which has no power, which has no responsibility, which feels cornered, and which sees no exit strategy from that corner. This opposition is much more dangerous for the stability in the country. And just a couple of weeks ago in my public speech, I called them kamikaze mentality opposition. And I got a lot of harsh criticisms for that. Basically, being kamikaze is not something bad, but in politics, this is bad because it means that, that these people, this group of people, cannot find their place in the political system. For us, it's an indicator that political system should be more open, more inclusive, so that everybody has place and nobody is ready to blow up himself just for the sake of damaging president or damaging ruling party because that damages country and stability. For us, that's the signal. But for them, it's also a major mistake, I believe, to corner themselves by mentioning concrete dates, by going too far with radical requests. So what we're doing to avoid that is we're trying, we're trying to reach out every segment of opposition. We work relatively well with parliamentary opposition, as I said, because we agreed on a basic rule. And that basic rule is that we fight each other politically which means that we do not damage the country for the sake of our political career, for the sake of our political goals. So whatever we do with each other, it means that it's not at the expense of the country. This is the only rule. We have no other rules of engagement with parliamentary opposition, and there are part of political parties which accepted this rule, that political, part, political fight should be for the sake of making country more democratic, more transparent, more advanced, more secured, more prosperous, but not you know, for moving country back because of this political fight. Part of parties accepted that, and we are more cooperative with them. It's easier to cooperate. Part of political parties, we have now ongoing consultations, and they try not to go too far for being radical and show some signs that they may agree to become part of this open and democratic system. And there is also a segment of opposition which is very radical and which shows no signs of uh, compromise or no signs of willingness to be part of the dialogue at this moment. But I hope that even that radical part of opposition will become more constructive after April 9th. And I will just remind you that April 9th is the last declared date by radical opposition when this government should go and when President really should resign. And per se, it's not something new because in the last three years, I can name you four or five different dates when this government had to be ended, but it's still there. So April 9 is the new date for that. And as I said, it's a, I believe, fundamental mistake from the side of radical opposition to give this specific date. Because by that, they corner themselves and leave no exit strategy. What happens when evening of April 9 comes? And Saakashvili is still president and I'm still chairman of parliament. What these guys do after? 
That is the fundamental question, and I'm afraid they themselves do not have clear answer on that. So that's why we are trying to reach out those guys and offer them a prominent normal exit strategy so that, I mean, our actions and our uh, political fight does not damage the country. So I hope that once this is done and once we manage with this April 9 deadline, then these people will become more constructive and they will become part of this more open and broader political system. And the third dimension of our reforms is exactly general transformation of the country, opening the system, making the country more democratic. That includes reforms in, uh, for media independence, for judiciary, for many different other things. And you will see detailed description. I'm ready to answer any specific questions about those reforms. That's, uh, I was supposed to speak only 15 minutes. I'm afraid I did much more than that, but uh, I mean, as an MP, you know, I have an instinct that I only stop when I see, when I hear hammer or a bell or something like that. So there are no hammers and bells here. So I, I spoke too much, for which I apologize. And thanks again. It's again my pleasure. And I think, I mean, I spoke too much simply because we have too much issues to discuss. And I hope that during question and answers, you will address specifically some of those issues so I'll have a chance to come back to those reforms again. Thank you very much. And should I, should you, will you introduce Andre? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Makaradze. I have to say that before moving to our next speaker, that uh, uh, Mr. Bakradza has a PhD in physics and mathematics. I would say that probably we do not have too many speakers of parliament around the world who have uh, PhDs in real serious science. Uh, the another person who uh, we have a, as a speaker also has a PhD in a very serious science in molecular biology. So, but uh, I assume that he will not speak about molecular biology uh, today. Uh, but it would be very much uh, very interesting. Kaha uh, Bindukidze is a unique person. Um, so I know Kaha for almost 20, 20 years uh, uh, since uh, Moscow days. And uh, Kaha became a very uh, successful business person uh, in uh, Russia. Uh, but a part of uh, his business activities, he became a very visible and very active and very important public uh, figure uh, in Russia, very active promoter of uh, liberal economic reform, became author of a number of uh, legislations, including, for example, a law on foreign exchange. Actually, Gahab uh, is the main author of the Russian law on foreign exchange. Uh, also a substantial portion of taxation, tax legislation and many others. Well, he also became a professor of the High School of Economics in uh, Moscow, as well was keeping incredibly active uh, position on a number of issues of uh, domestic economic agenda. Uh, since uh, June year 2004, under invitation of the President Saakashvili, Kaha uh, moved to Georgia and became uh, Minister of Economy, Minister for Coordination of Economic Reforms, and later uh, Head of the Presidential Chancery. In those capacities, uh, he was able to demonstrate unique, uh, unique uh, skills and uh, abilities to be the principal author of the Georgian uh, economic and substantial portion of uh, Georgian institutional reforms. 
So it's once again, it's impossible even to mention what have been achieved uh, within this incredibly short period of time. But uh, it's probably fair to say that by magnitude, by depth, and by the speed of reforms that have been implemented in the country, uh, Georgia probably is the most absolute outstanding example in the world history, what has been achieved in the last uh, uh, four and a half years. So uh, now uh, we are eager to listen uh, to Kaha Bindakiza. Please have floor is yours. Thank you. Magic. So, um, actually, it's the continuation of what uh, David was talking about here, that more reforms create more flexibility, and it's an old Chinese proverb, I think, that flexible stick cannot be fractured. So, um, so just to refresh, we have war with Russia. Uh, in August, and here is the some of the outcomes um, and damages. And uh, I want to ask you and myself why it happens. Because what means independent Georgia? I mean, why Russia is so uh, so concerned to to control Georgia? Because uh, Russia is controlling Armenia. Russia is closest ally of Iran, uh, and uh, if uh, uh, Georgia is in today shape, it is the only route to Western world, and I mean I can say the real world, for Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and um, either I'll, I'll include in this. Uh, least the uh, Afghanistan, because uh, Afghanistan, another side of Afghanistan has borders with these countries, or with Iran, or with Pakistan. And I mean, borders in Afghanistan means that it's extremely high mountains. So, so and, uh, and the Russian control of Georgia means just like that all this part of the world will be consolidated and... Uh, Lost for for uh, development, development we would like, and I think that the the, uh, the last development with Manas uh, airbase is clearly showing what's the uh, what's the power of the Russia to deal with uh, these countries, and this is showing just how how uh, pipelines is going to Europe, and why why Georgia is important for for Russia. But I think that Georgia is important not only for Russia. Georgia can and should be important for all the world because, uh, I mean, as any, any, any small country need to be, must be important for, for the global uh, world. And, um, uh, and also because I think that we can, we, can, we can show how small countries can be resilient and how small countries can reform themselves and to be more or less successful. So, <clears throat> and the challenges we have in 2004 uh, was that 20% of our territory was occupied 
We have two Russian military bases, which we have not now, on a controlled part of territory. There was widespread corruption, blackouts, and uh, then we have some new challenges like natural gas price hiking, which was supplied from Russia twice and then once more twice, so it was four times more in two years. Then in 2006, we have Russian embargo, which in World Bank, people said me that they cannot use in official documents word Russian embargo, because embargo is what can happen after war. And we don't have a war with Russia because uh, it was uh, not a war, because it was not declared as war. So we have this embargo, uh, <coughs> which means that there was without any formal document, no, no Georgian export can enter Russian territory. And uh, we have t political disturbance triggered uh, by Russia, and we have war with Russia, and uh, we are expecting something can be done this year also. So what, is, what can be our action? What was the choice which was done by President Saakashvili and his team in 2004? Uh, the action can be the, only the freedom and the openness, because you cannot uh, deal with this problem, by, and uh, there is no other means to deal with these problems. So fight corruption, cut bureaucracy, cut red tape, privatize state property, open markets, deregulate energy sector, reduce taxes, and respect citizens' choice, which I think is the main thing and the center of all reforms. So, and we get some rewards. Um, you can see that we have very substantial GDP growth, as Andre mentioned. Uh, we were uh, one of the leading countries in foreign direct investments. Despite that, uh, our territory was occupied despite that problems because we, uh, our decision was to counterbalance that problems by more radical reforms. The average mediocre reforms cannot, can gain in country not having that problems. With country having that problems, you can do only very radical things and to counterbalance the problems which are inherited from previous life. So, and what happens immediately after war? It's also interesting how the economy reacts and how government reacts immediately after war. We have more than 100,000 displaced persons. We have unexpected state budget expenditures to house displaced persons, some of them temporary, some of them unfortunately for quite a long. And our response was business as usual. No price control, no quotas, no bailouts, nationalization, uh, no interruption of supplies of food electricity that happens due to, as they are run by responsible private companies. Business registration uh, during uh, the post-war period was roughly the same, 3,000 businesses registered a month, which is quite a very good result. And after war, we simplified the custom procedures, and after war, we reduced personal income tax from 25% to 20%. So that was the response of government and the response of economy on, uh, on after-war situation. And also we built houses for more than 25,000 uh, refugees, and uh, uh, these houses are transferred in. Uh, that, 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 that take two and a half months, uh, and that houses are transferred to... And private, they, they are privately owned by the, those refugees, those displaced persons who were exiled by Russian troops from their permanent residence place. And um, 
uh, when they, they and I, I, I'm sure that will <coughs> will return uh, our territories and they'll return to their houses, but they'll they'll remain this in their personal belongings. Um, so, how it was done? Uh, corruption. So, the one of the main pillars of this government was and is fighting corruption. Uh, fighting corruption means a lot of things. There is no single powder which you can use to empower society, and then you'll have no corruption. Yeah. So it means many things. It means fighting corruption and not. Be having zero, zero, zero tolerance to any corruption uh, any, of any official. Second is to simplifying uh, administrative procedures and cutting red tape. And uh, by, if you have no contact between private person and government official because there is no regulation, of course you cannot have corruption there. Uh, it means increasing transparency, transparency of government procurement, transparency of decision-making. And uh, the result is now that from being one of the champions, uh, maybe a little bit behind uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and uh, we, we, we were the number four uh, uh, in this uh, particular survey, uh, now we significantly reduce, and that's the corruption perception index. And also we have another date, for example, when people are asked, have you, have you personally... Uh, any corruption event last year. And uh, the average in uh, Eastern Europe is 20-something percent. Is saying, okay, yes, we have. And in Georgia, it was 2-point-something percent. So how it was done? We liberalized our trade unilateral, not waiting when we can achieve free trade agreement with Europe or whatever, some, some countries. So we have no quotas on important export. Uh, we have only three bands, and the custom tariffs of zero tariff is applied to more than 90% of goods. And we, we use these 12 and 5% rates only for some agricultural products and construction materials. This was a political compromise. But actually, the level of custom tariffs is very low. It's 0.25% of GDP. And we have no technical uh, technical barriers. Sorry, it's a mistake here. Not tariff, but non-tariff barriers. The uh, technical requirement of most of the developed countries or CS countries are accept, accepted in Georgia as equal to national requirements. That means that um, from huge amount of countries, you, you can import goods not uh, 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 not looking to only for only for national requirements for safety, but using that country, for example, German or Japanese. Uh, safety requirements. Uh, we simplified the procedures for import and local production, uh, less paperwork. Uh, for example, the uh, uh, export uh, and import was something like 50 days, more than 50 days in 2005, something like 15 days in 2006, and now it takes only four days and five days, respectively. And the, the outcome was the rapid growth of foreign trade. So in the left chart, upper chart, we have foreign trade in goods. In the right chart, we have foreign trade in services. And uh, the, it's the summary. And we can see that from uh, uh, two, and, two and a half billion U.S. dollar trade in 2003, 
on in goods and services. We have now in 2007 eight 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 eight, eight, eight and a half billion dollar, uh, and uh, also the, the, there was the the not only due to that reform but all of all 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 reforms there was very dynamic growth of um, foreign direct investments and that's important and also we have very diversified source of investments and source uh, very diversified trade partners so if we uh, in 2003 rely on russia as main trade partner both for export and for import so now uh, we have much much uh, much changed situation so our biggest trade partner is now turkey then azerbaijan then ukraine then germany then, and then only russia and the same happens uh, the with fdi so the fdi there is no no single champion country for FDA. The structure is changing from year to year, and that's I mean just something the same in percentage points in pie chart. Uh, how how it is changing? Uh, there is uh, reforms which are very simple and can be done in many countries, but are not done. I don't know why. For example. Um, and they have no no that type of uh, ideological background. It's not they are not libertarian and they are not, I mean, leftist. They are just uh, good for people. For example, we have visa policy in 2004. When if you are American citizen and you want to go to Georgia, you should go to uh, consulate in person, and it will take one month or maybe more. To look, take the uh, take the visa, and if we are living not in Washington D.C. but I don't know, in uh, Indianapolis or in Kansas, uh, it, you, you need to travel to Washington. So um, there was very simple uh, simple reform, which was done in 2004 and then expanded in 2009. I mean, just two weeks ago, Parliament. Uh, passed uh, third reading these amendments to the law, which was ex uh, expanding the uh, the list of countries and stay. So today, if uh, citizens of more than 56 uh, more, than, uh, more than 50 countries, particularly 56 countries, can come to Georgia without visa requirement, uh, Americans, Canadians, Mexicans, Europeans, Japanese. South Koreans, etc. So, all countries, all developed countries, all countries with substantially higher wealth, they can come without any special visa requirement and stay in Georgia up to 360 days. So, and also we have much simplified visa procedures, getting on the border for other countries and restricted only for some very special countries. So, that's very simple, and that boost that gets very very good outcome that boosts tourism. Uh, people coming to make deals, they don't need to go to consular service. I mean, if some American investor or French investor or Italian investor wants to come to Georgia, he don't need to contact with bureaucracy. He just is flying to Georgia, just buying ticket and um, doing his business. Tax reform, I think the, the one of the backbones of, of the reform so it was um, a continuous reduction of taxes from year 2004, where it was slashed from 21 taxes, which was an enormous amount of different taxes, to 
basic taxes, and then merging and simplifying that taxes also. And uh, the main uh, tax cuts were done after war, effective from uh, 1st January of this year. The uh, personal income tax is reduced to 20%. And we are looking to, uh, to uh, and it is written in the law, which was adopted by Parliament and signed by President, that we'll have more reduction of personal income tax uh, in uh, 2011, uh, 12, and 13, uh, finally going to 15% personal income tax. Um, there was big, uh, big, uh, big slash down in uh, amount of reforms and amount of license, license and permits, simplifying procedures of property registration, uh, business registration, uh, and uh, the result is very, uh, very simple and uh, I mean also very uh, symptomatic on the uh, right, uh, right chart. You can see that the uh, property registration was not significantly affected by war. So people are doing business as usual. The labor market uh, from Soviet type, Soviet type labor regulation coming closer to what is what you have in the United States. Uh, opening, uh, open transport policy, having open sky, abolishing transit fees, liberalizing, liberalizing railway tariff policy, and uh, that gains in both international trade and more transit, privatizing, a lot of holy cows, you can see here, like seaports. When I first we say, say that, okay, the seaport can be privatized, the uh, French ambassador comes to me and said, okay, how we can privatize port? I said, okay, there, there is a lot of private ports in England, in the United States. I said, no, no, but that's England and the United States. How you can privatize port in Georgia? How... It's impossible to have private port in Georgia. And the result of the policy is that we have two private port, privatized ports, and third private port was built by private investors, private investors Greenfield from zero, from scratch. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the achievement which I am proud, and I think that Mr. Tseretelli, who is here, and Mr. Speaker of Parliament, is also very proud, is what's our spending policy for for, uh, uh, for um, uh, social, uh, social needs. For, uh, and um, uh, of course we can, we can have uh, uh, some very deep uh, uh, theoretical discussion about does we need or, does we, uh, or not that type of spendings. But if you have that type of spending, the question is how are they organized? And uh, the, uh, whole, uh, the idea which was behind Georgian reforms was that we should provide funding to customers, to consumers, to citizens, not to institutions, and to fund poors first. And in healthcare, uh, we are moving to, uh, uh, to uh, outdated state-owned hospitals to new private hospitals. Of course, it will take time, but it will happen. And but what's the most important thing is that 20% of Population actually the poorest quintile received insurance voucher and choose insurance company by themselves. Not government make the decision about insurance company, but they make the decision by themselves. And uh, also, what's important that 80% of state healthcare budget is diverted to poorest quintile, 
And this is tremendous difference between this situation and what we have in 2004, when it was attempt of to, to have it evenly distributed, and it was there was deficit everywhere, so nobody was happy. And if you were really poor, you have no sh no chance to get access to this public good. And in education, uh, education we have very wide school choice as basic our education system. Uh, so so uh, education financing for um, primary and secondary education is that uh, we are funding pupils and they are making, uh, their families are making decisions in which school they want to go. There is equal access to funds for all, for these funds, for uh, private and public schools, secondary and primary also. That increased number of private schools and pupils in private schools and now approximately 7% of Georgian population is using of Georgian peoples are going to private schools and growing private universities also. So, uh, of course, uh, it's impossible uh, 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 to, to have any policy forum when we can describe uh, describe all reforms or something like that. I, I, the, my main goal was, was to show that the economic reforms, reforms based on freedom, uh, uh, respect of choice and uh, openness, uh, they are creating a lot of flexibility and resilience in, in uh, society and economic life, and that helps you to overcome the uh, meltdowns, uh, embargoes, wars, and problems. Of course, it would be much better if we have no debt problems. Uh, in that case, I think we'll, we'll have not average 9% growth, but I think we'll have average 14% growth, or maybe we have no, no incentives to make that reforms. So thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Bindukidze. Uh, before we're moving to the Q&A session, I just would like to make a very short uh, personal observation. There is a widely uh, shared notion that the time of economic crisis is not a very good time for liberal reforms and liberalization. And we have seen uh, how in some countries authorities uh, have proclaimed that they are all Keynesians right now and involved in fiscal stimulus, monetary easings, and extra regulation. The time of war is even uh, less uh, good for uh, liberal uh, reforms and liberalization. So, and also we can see that in time of war, many uh, countries was actually uh, stifled their uh, regulations and the societies. What was really striking in the Georgian case that on the contrary to this uh, approach, the Georgian authorities just right after the war and during the crisis and right now until today, uh, response was absolutely different. It's quite opposite. They said, in the case of crisis, in the case of war, what should we do? Should we do even to just to establish more regulations and more taxation? No. We have to liberalize more and we have to democratize more. And we have heard a little bit about that. And now we uh, would like uh, to know more. And the floor is open for your questions. Please uh, raise your hands. Please identify yourself, identify your affiliation, and raise your question. Please, gentlemen here. Yes, thank you. My name is Frank Fletcher. Uh, I work for STS. We're a private consulting company for business management. Uh, my question to the um, um, 
members of uh, Parliament, um, what is the state of science and technology and its development in Georgia? Is it centered around the universities? Um, are foreign investors um, demanding or seeking um, more scientific and technical capabilities? In the U.S., for example, as you know, in certain areas, the science and technology is attracted to um, companies and research centers to where the universities are doing a lot of work. And so if you could talk on this issue for a moment. Thank you. Um, actually, uh, uh, you should take into account that Georgian GDP per capita is $4,000, not as, uh, ten, 10 times less than the United States. So, uh, uh, so Georgian, in Georgia we have uh, formally uh, something like 3,500 scientists. Uh, part of them working for universities, part of them working for uh, independent state-owned uh, uh, public institutions, the uh, research institutes, so-called research institutes. And now some of these institutes, they are going through, uh, I mean, voluntarily they are merging with uh, universities. Uh, uh, so, so the main, 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 main public universities. Uh, actually, uh, uh, I cannot say that there is some big idea how Georgia suddenly in one day can become a Silicon Valley or something like that, because that needs enormous investments. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the funding, uh, funding uh, per, per scientist, let's say, uh, is increasing, and today it, uh, it is uh, something like $10,000 per scientist, I'm average. And it is distributed uh, as uh, on a competitive base through a National Science Foundation, like, I mean, especially like how it is in the United States. And um, also there is uh, significant but not very big uh, private funding, private funding for Georgian, non-Georgian sources. And uh, I think that the, uh, the uh, Developments which uh, were done, especially the developments of so-called free industrial zones, and which are helping to uh, export of that type of knowledge, also can boost it additionally. So, if you have some ideas, you can come and try it in Georgia. Okay, just to add, we had very much centralized Soviet system when there was a one. Academy of Sciences, which was a bureaucratic body, and all these research institutions were under that academy, part of that. So it was academy receiving state money and then distributing money to different institutions without competition, but just on the base of personal, you know, uh, priorities or just bureaucratic approach that everyone should receive equal amount of money. So that was transformed and that was one of the most painful reforms in the country, so causing a lot of criticism because we had to touch a very heart of very sensitive part of society, which is scientists and elite of the scientists, which were part of the high bureaucracy in this Academy of Sciences. So it was a very painful, politically painful reform, but we did it and now that's all completely decentralized and every research institution has independent access to funding based on the competition. So now it's there is no longer centralization. Everybody receives money, but it depends on their projects, it depends on their values, and it's very much the competition base. So the entire system has been changed. Right. Uh, lady over there. 
you. Um, my name is Lauren, and I'm a graduate student at Georgetown University. Um, given that there are protests by the opposition planned for April, and that the foremost independent TV station, Amadi, um, was shut down in November 2007, what assurances does the opposition have that the independent media will be allowed to cover this new round of uh, protests? Uh, okay, I think it's not about uh, assurances which they have, but it's about facts which they have. And the facts are that they, they have unrestricted media access, and this paper covers part of what was done to, in that direction to ensure unrestricted media access. I can just tell you that one of the measurements of media access is number of uh, live political talk shows with opposition access, AQL access from opposition and ruling party. So what we have today is we have four nationwide channels, and those four nationwide channels have seven weekly live political talk shows. And in every talk show, we have one representative of majority and usually two or three representatives of different political parties. So opposition, basically speaking, has better access than majority, but it's because of their numbers. Uh, and plus to that, we have some regional channels, and we have 21 live weekly political sh talk shows on different channels, including channels which broadcast for Tbilisi and surrounding region, which is the politically the most uh, central part of the country, of course. So all in all, we have 28 weekly political talk shows in Georgia today. So the problem today is talk shows competing for speakers. It's not speakers competing for talk shows. Basically, that's, that's the case. And in, in these numbers, I do not count 41 political debates or show, talk shows conducted by different Georgian radios, FM radios, which are very popular. And many people in Georgia listen to, like in the United States, listen to those radios. And on different channels, they have 41 talk shows. So that's one of the indicators of the access to media. And we have a very frequent case when opposition leaders being broadcasted in life complain that they do not have access to media. That's unfortunately a very frequent case, but you can judge how credible is it when you, have when you are under live broadcast and make a complaint that you do not have access to media. That, I mean, I, I don't think it's fair. But that TV talk shows, that's one of the indicators. The second thing which we did recently is that we allowed opposition to have representative in the Communication Commission. And that's the commission which makes all decisions about technical regulations related to media. So basically, that's the commission which is in charge of entire the media environment and space in Georgia. So now we change the law in a way that opposition has a representative there, which means that the system is transparent. And if there is any decision restricting any media, whether it's TV or radio or newspaper, opposition is part of that decision, and they have full information, inside information, why it was done. And if, if it was done unlawfully, of course, then it's up to opposition to make a lot of political noise and protest that decision. So now opposition is inside this decision-making body. The third, which we did, and from the viewpoint of liberal reforms, I'm afraid it was not, I mean, very correct, but we still did it. We obliged by law Georgian public broadcaster to have political uh, talk shows, weekly political talk shows with EQL access, guaranteed EQL access to opposition and ruling party. I mean, we cannot oblige commercial TV channels by law that, but since the public broadcast is channel which is funded from state budget, we decided that for the sake of uh, political culture for the sake of democracy, we can oblige public broadcasters. So we made legal amendments by which we obliged public broadcasters to have weekly political talk shows with opposition participation. So now it's not up to them. They cannot cancel, and this is something guaranteed and protected by law. 
And one more point which I will mention is that we uh, came out with the initiative to establish a special political channel, which is something similar, ideally similar to CISPAN, and that's all underway, and big part of the technical procedures is already accomplished, so somewhere in upcoming months we will have a special political channel with almost unrestricted and excess of opposition of different politicians to that channel, and that will be live coverage as well. So, I mean, there are a number of uh, insurances which ensure that the media freedom is secured in the country and which ensures that dynamic is positive and we move toward, towards the freer society. So I don't think that there is any real risk or any real problem related to media coverage or related to extent of media freedom in Georgia. Some people, some opposition leaders may not like this or that TV station. Some may claim that particular TV station is more pro-governmental, but, you know, it's, it's natural. It happens in every society, and I would argue that CNN is more pro uh, democratic than pro-Republican, for example, but what matters is that there is objective flow of information and there is unrestricted access, and both are guaranteed. So, I mean, the personal preferences of journalists in this case doesn't matter, but again, it's uh, it may be the allegation from some opposition members. In general, how it is measured, it is measured by access, it is measured by information, and it is measured by quality, and all these three things are guaranteed. And also about printed media... There is no licensing of printed media. I mean, you can come to Georgia and um, establish your newspaper or weekly magazine or whatever. And there is no regulation for that. I mean, and printed media. I want to say that 99% of printed media are favorable to opposition. Don't make me happy. And, and compliance procedures on purpose, and we adopted that law. Compliance procedures are incredibly difficult. We had no single, we had a lot of allegations, including personal attacks against politicians in our media, yeah. especially printed media. I was attacked. Himself. I was attacked many times yeah. as well. But it's incredibly difficult to have any case in the court against media. It's, it's almost impossible. Practically, that is impossible. And we had no case when journalist or media outlet was charged responsible for any kind of very personal, very unobjective, you know, very, very intimidating even attacks against personality or against the political uh, activities of certain leaders. We did this, we accepted that law, and on purpose we made it so difficult that it is impossible. It never works. Uh, gentleman here. Joe Bell from Hogan and Hartson. Um, your description of the economic reforms was really quite impressive. I'm curious, though, how you're handling the problem of old age savings, Social Security, retirement savings, uh, and particularly in light of what has happened here with many privately sponsored uh, uh, programs. Yeah, thank you. It's a very important question. Hopefully, uh, we have no uh, state funded system for uh, aid for retirement or for Social Security. So we have universal budget. That means that all taxes are collected within budget and then they are used uh, for, uh, for spending purposes based on laws and parliament decisions. So uh, what, uh, and I think that uh, we'll, uh, hopefully I will never have the, uh, the funded system because I think that this last financial turmoil reveals all uh, huge uh, negative sides of uh, funded system. So uh, the, the, the social security system in general, which is in Georgia factually 
existing and which is this going through some evolution is mixture of uh, uh, what is called pe- people's passion, so uh, some even distribution uh, based on age to each citizen above some age, and to to a means-tested uh, poverty benefits. So the uh, the, prob- the the means-tested poverty benefits were launched some uh, three three years ago, yeah, three and a half years ago. And, uh, but they are growing much faster than uh, other parts of so- social benefits, like plane. So, of course, I think that the, the uh, responsible, responsible, uh, policy for, responsible policy for uh, social benefits would be that uh, the, uh, the means-tested part should outgrow the plane part. So that means that we can use that scarce resources we have to help people who are in need. It was done more effectively for a healthcare part, which is also part of the big social budget. For uh, for for other part, it was less profoundly, but it it happens also. So at least we can say that today, uh, something like uh, one uh, quarter of social budget is going on targeted way. One quarter, so three quarters are plain. Uh, I think that when we'll have inverse situation, then we have three quarter to uh, need needed population and one quarter plain. I think that I'll, I'll be I'll be very happy. Right. Okay. Uh, gentleman here. Georgi uh, Hausuriani, Cogent Communications. I guess my question is to Mr. Bakradze. Uh, Mr. Bakradze, how do you explain the radicalization and irresponsibility of the certain groups of the opposition leaders, especially Nino Burjanadze, former um, chairperson of uh, you know, Georgian uh, parliament? Thank you. Uh, thank you. I think for her case, it's... It may be more or less clear because she was long time associated with this government. She was uh, Speaker of Parliament, which is second position in the country constitutionally. So she was second person in the country for seven years. She was twice acting president of a country. So she was one of the leaders of Rose Revolution. So all her career was very closely associated with current government. So when she decided to go to opposition, she decided that the way how she can destroy that association and how she can find the new identity is to be very critical to this government. And so I, I think she went, she distanced herself as much as she could from this government, you know, by making a very radical statement. And with that, she tried to establish the new identity of Bujanadze not being part of the government. So I think it was partly, it's just my speculation or my explanation, but I think it was partly done because she was so strongly affiliated with the current government where she played a key role during the last seven years. So that's partly. As, as, as the general answer why part of the opposition is so radical, when it's it's really difficult to give a rational answer. I mean, we are really trying to have the dialogue and communication with all of them because, as I said, this is the danger for the country. One has to understand also the psychological mentality of Georgians. Starting from 1988, all major changes in the country has been associated with uh, protest rallies and street demonstrations and street actions. 
So 1989, when we had massive demonstrations against Communist Party and Soviet Union, and that led to first multi-party elections and change and, 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 and resignation of Communist Party from the power. Then we had 1992, when again, uh, I mean, um, change of President Gamsakhurdia was first president. Gamsakhurdia was associated with the street and street protests. Then we had 2003 when change of President Chevardnadze was again caused by revolution, which is also a street action. Then we had 2007 when, as a result of political crisis, Saakashvili stepped down and appointed new SNAP presidential election. So in Georgian mentality, it's very closely related. Two things, that if you want to achieve something in politics, one of the most effective ways is to organize street protests and street rallies. And this partly explains why this opposition is so radicalized, because they see that by normal political fight, by normal political means, I mean, they have no chances to oppose to this government. What we offer them is a very much issue-based approach, and we offer this is the country with very concrete problems. People have problems of employment, people have problems of health care, social assistance, security, so let's sit down and discuss all these problems as it happens during the normal political discussion. As I said, part of the opposition accepts this offer, but part of the opposition thinks that if they get engaged with us in that issue-based discussion, they lose because then they lose this uh, radical option, and then if they abandon the street option and radical option, this is only way which can lead to any change, any deliverable change. So that's partly, I think, because of our mentality and the particularities of our history of last 20 years, why people think that street rally, street protest, hunger strike is something which works most effectively if you want to have any deliverable changes in the government. So that partly explains why it is so radicalized. I can't give you exact, if I knew exact answer on that question, we would also think in better way how to find the way out from that, because as I said, we are offering dialogue and exit strategy, not to save them, because at a certain point, you know, these kind of politicians should go to history and we should have the new, more mature political culture in the country. But again, as I said, if people feel cornered and if people feel that they have nothing to lose, they become dangerous. And it's not in our interest. We want to have inclusive political system where every political party, radical, non-radical, moderate, non-moderate, every political party will have its established place. That's the democratic system. That's what we're trying to construct. And this kind of cornered people are not part of this system. So we are trying to reach out. Let's see. I hope that after 9th of April they will be more constructive. But I, I, I'm afraid if I was a representative of radical opposition, I would give you better answer why I was so radical. But I cannot do it for them. And I was never radical myself in, in my life, so it's difficult to explain. Right. We have time for the very last question. Lady in the back. Can you please tell us... Oh, I'm Helen Rafael, Resources for the Future. Can you please tell us how the current global economic recession has impacted Georgia and how the policies you have described will be either intensified or altered in any way to meet the problems engendered? Um, thank you. Uh, actually, uh, uh, of course, we are not on some uh, island which is above all this turbulence. Uh, we were affected because Georgian economic growth based on big inflow of foreign direct investments. And of course, now that source is dried up. 
uh, and uh, the inflow is much less. It's not zero, but it's much less. Maybe a quarter of what we have, or third what we have uh, in 2007. So that means that uh, this year we'll have no significant economic growth, and in some scenarios we can have either some contraction of economy. And the important thing is that what what can be the uh, the uh, government response? Uh, the government response, which I think is very very uh, right response, is not to bail out uh, industries which are overheated, the bubble bubbled industries like uh, real estate, but to uh, expand the uh, the targeted social assistance uh, and expand the amount of people who are who can be helped by, by government funds to, uh, to survive and to overcome the situation. And uh, thanks, I think, that position also, we have uh, no, uh, no uh, bailouts and uh, no that type of wasting of public money. Um, and also, I think that uh, government can be active and uh, continue reforms on one hand, and second, Build invest, investors, invest, investors' confidence toward Georgia and attract more investments because actually we are a small economy. Uh, what we need for really very good economic growth, we need $2 billion of uh, private money flowing into the Georgia. That is not a tremendous amount of money. Of course, it's not peanuts, but it's, if you're looking to what the global financial system and global investors can do, it's very, very tiny part of that. So. You need, we need to be uh, uh, more proactive, I mean, explaining more about what can be done in Georgia, attracting more investors to Georgia, uh, improving, uh, improving general business climate in Georgia. Uh, I think that further reduction of taxes is also very important and some other changes to create better, better, better climate in Georgia. And I mean, that's the only answer which can be done. For to to to, uh, to uh, overcome the economic crisis and uh, I mean expanding budget deficit uh, five times I think that's not not the answer. And we are we are cutting uh, administrative expenses and that's something which every ministry and parliament also is obliged to do and we pledge that we will cut administrative expenses money spent on government by ten percent and that's additional savings. And plus to that, uh, as uh, Mr. Bendukidze said, we do not do direct bailouts, but instead we reinvest money in economy. We have about one and a half billion U.S. dollars, which government will reinvest in economy, and that will be mostly infrastructural projects. Those will be construction projects, gasification of the country, uh, improving of water supplies, road construction, and we will spend money in that, and we will help private companies through this state reinvestment to find uh, to, 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 to find funding, to find projects, and to keep employment and to keep people working for them. So that state money spent for these purposes, infrastructural reconstruction purposes, and that's the chance for all private companies, instead of being just simply bailed out, that's the chance for them to participate in these tenders, to win this tender, and to get funding and to do this job. So we try to substitute the decrease in the private uh, consumer demand by the state reinvestment in our economy. And for this small country like Georgia, $1.5 billion uh, internal investment, economic investment is uh, really quite an important amount of money. I think our speakers deserve really great uh, round of applause.
Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Bakladze. Thank you very much, Mr. Benzakidze. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for coming to the Kate Institute.